Talking about cancer is daunting. Nearly everyone on the planet has some experience with or connection to the disease. Indeed, one in five men and one in six women around the world will develop cancer during their lifetime. That's according to the IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer. The World Health Organization expects cancer to overtake heart disease as a leading cause of death in this century as populations grow and developing countries adapt the sedentary and indulgent lifestyle of their wealthier peers. This year alone, reports the IARC, nearly 10 million people globally have died from the disease. But as dire as these stats are, they don't tell the whole story. According to the American Cancer Society, cancer death rates in the U.S. from 1991 to 2015 plummeted 26% driven primarily by rapid declines in death rates for the four most common types, lung, colorectal, breast, and prostate. This is a reflection of earlier detection and better treatment. And an overall decline in smoking over the last decade has driven down lung cancer in the U.S., especially in men. Now, as with every other aspect of society, rapid advances in technology are enabling cancer researchers to make new discoveries, test new treatments, and improve outcomes. This year, as part of its Shannon Luminary Lecture Series, Nokia Bell Labs invited renowned researcher Dr. Benjamin Ebert to deliver a talk entitled The Future of Cancer Prevention. And coupled with a clear and comprehensive look at the current state of cancer research, Dr. Ebert provided a fascinating perspective on the power of digitized data, intriguing new paths of inquiry, and ultimately, a promising outlook. From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. This is episode 14, Engineering Better Cancer Outcomes. Dr. Benjamin Ebert wears many hats. As Marcus Weldon, Bell Labs president and Nokia CTO, puts it in his introduction. So he's currently co-director of the cancer program at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. It's pretty good. Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. That one's actually rather short and not so impressive. Uh, <laughs> Chair of Medical Oncology at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and that's uh, fantastically impressive. Hematologist and oncologist. It sounds like he, part-time he's a hematologist, uh, oncologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he's still got a linkage back to the Broad Institute, which is a collaborative institute between Harvard and MIT. So that is not bad at all. And Dr. Ebert dives in offering a quick summation of how cancer forms in our body. So at the very basic level, cancer is caused by genetic mutations that are somatic, meaning they're acquired during the course of your life, not uh, necessarily at birth. And those mutations have to happen in a particular cellular context. Not any cell in the body can become cancerous. The vast majority of mutations that you can introduce into a cell don't cause cancer, but a small number of mutations in the right cellular context causes cancer. And it's not just one mutation, it needs to be the sequential acquisition of multiple mutations. In the last several years, innovations in genetic sequencing have been a godsend, helping him and his colleagues to do more targeted studies. This is really recent. So just in the last few years, due to advances in sequencing technology and the ability to sequence the whole genome, We've now sequenced many, many thousands of cases, and we have a parts list now for cancer. We know pretty much all the major driver mutations that cause cancer, and we can now have clinical tests 
Now that we can take the whole genome and narrow it down to the small number of genes that are recurrently mutated, we can analyze those in a clinical setting. As he tells Marcus in a conversation after the lecture, genetic signatures have become the focus of many cancer scientists. Actually, one area of cancer research that's become quite prominent is defining the signatures of exposures. Find all the mutations that happened in that cancer, look in the few nucleotides on either side, and come up with signatures that correlate with particular exposures. Um, in fact, the Sanger Center in Cambridge, an institute in Cambridge University, is kind of leading that effort. And the signature mean uh, a genetic, genetic signature yeah. that gave rise to that mutation. Yes, exactly. It's only a tiny percentage of mutations will actually lead to cancer, and, in, and most of those mutations will occur in a cell that can never become cancer. So you have to have a mutation in one of the small number of genes that can actually lead to initiation of cancer. Big data is also driving innovation in pathology, which is the clinical examination of samples of body tissue. Until recent times... This was a purely manual effort. Maybe you got a large biopsy, yep. taking an entire chunk of tissue and sectioning that tissue and looking at all the slides is beyond, you yep. know, you can't have a pathologist spend six hours per case uh, to look through all the slides, but a computer could do that. There's opportunities there. The medical records are now digitized. digitized yep. Not always perfectly accessible, but they are meant to be and then they can be. Much of what we try to do in terms of our human research or translational research is to look for associations between a genetic mutation and a morphology of cells and a clinical outcome. We do that in a supervised kind of way. Like, we really want to know who responded to a drug or we want to know who had a long survival versus a short survival. Those are types of things that we can do simply. Which opens the door for using machine learning to make further inroads. An intriguing message for an audience of engineers and data scientists. We are now getting all these genetic mutations on all of our patients routinely. We also get histology, the pathology samples, on all of our patients, kind of by definition. Every tumor gets biopsied and looked at under a microscope. But that's now getting digitized. So that's also digital information that can be analyzed, and there's lots of discussion, at least in initial projects and understanding ways of analyzing that through AI. The genetic mutations that give rise to cancer do not occur randomly. In fact, each instance of cancer is reliant on mutations happening in specific sequences. Not only are there a bunch of mutations in every individual cancer, their order of acquisition matters. They can't be acquired in a random order. If the mutations that come at the end happen first, the cell usually just dies. It doesn't develop a premalignant lesion. Only certain mutations will lead to that initial step uh, of cancer. In order to unlock the code and understand how these mutations form and then replicate, a process called clonal expansion, Dr. Ebert and his colleagues are striving to get access to more and more samples, especially in the earliest pre-malignant stage. But one of the questions we wondered was, if there's an initial mutation that leads to a clonal expansion, maybe that's way more common than full-blown leukemia. Just like polyps in the colon are far more common than full-blown colon cancer. So we set about trying to find that early stage, that pre-malignant stage. So that created a, a challenge for us. If we're studying cancer, it's straightforward what samples we study. We find the patients with that kind of cancer, we get samples from the surgeons or from the clinicians who are taking care of that, and we do our genetic analyses and characterize them. 
Here we want to study uh, people before they get any malignancy, and so we needed to look at the general population, and that's really expensive to, to go after many, many, many samples. But they realized there was another way. Whenever somebody's signing up for a genetic study, they get a blood draw. That's the easiest, most accessible source of DNA for various genetic studies. And these could be blood draws for a wide variety of purposes, such as checking to see if one has an inherited predisposition for certain diseases. What we found was a bit surprising to us. In younger individuals, which here I'll mean uh, under age 40, we almost never found a cancer-causing mutation in the peripheral blood. But by the age of 70, over 10% of everybody had a mutation that was in their peripheral blood, in their circulating blood, that was a mutation that we find in acute myeloid leukemia, which is a very aggressive, very difficult to treat leukemia. Now, this is just an initial mutation that could lead to a blood cancer. Only a few of the 17,000 had more than one mutation. But still, the 10% number correlating with the 70 plus year olds was astonishing. And soon came to be corroborated by a number of researchers who arrived at the same findings using vastly different methods. This was a very encouraging sign that Dr. Ebert and his colleagues were onto something. The existence of this pre-malignancy, also called a CHIP, which stands for clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, reveals to researchers a relatively high-risk pool of patients for whom they can target treatments. As Dr. Ebert explained to me in our chat after the lecture, identifying pre-malignant states before somebody has developed cancer and how to monitor them and in conceivably in some cases how to treat them or prevent the development of cancer. That's something that is a major aspiration for us now, but it is still just an aspiration and we don't know how far we'll get. But at least in the case of colon cancer and the development of polyps and cervical cancer and in a few other cases, the identification of those pre-malignant states is had a major effect on the development of cancers of those types and deaths from those cancers. So we're hopeful that we'll be able to spread that to more types of cancer. Soon, they learned that their findings had broader implications, well beyond the world of cancer research. In studying these folks, researchers found that even though the possibility of these patients developing a blood cancer was remote, their overall life expectancy was significantly lower than their peers, the ones who didn't have the chip. As Dr. Ebert posed it, they had about a 40% increased risk of dying of all causes if you had a mutation in the blood compared to those who don't. And leukemia is still too rare a disease to shift overall mortality, the overall risk of dying. By 40%, that's actually a pretty big shift at a population level. So how could this be? Much to our surprise, we found that those individuals who had a mutation in their peripheral blood had a higher risk of dying of cardiovascular disease than uh, those without a mutation in their blood. And it was a, actually a quite a large effect size. This is a, called a hazard ratio of, of about two. It's about doubling the risk of heart disease. Once we made that initial finding exploring around in the data, we did subsequent studies specifically to validate that and to explore it further functionally and mechanistically. And so that led to an entirely new avenue of research that we never would have undertaken had we not explored that initially. Were you surprised when you saw it with the chip and the genetic mutations and the correlation to 
non-cancer yeah. cases. When did that sort of come on your radar and how surprising was that to you? Totally surprising and wasn't at all why we were doing the studies. So that's probably the most fun aspect of doing scientific research is when it leads you in a direction you never would expect and you just follow it wherever it leads. This pre-malignant state that increases the risk of getting a blood cancer may cause far more morbidity and mortality, far more deaths, far more disease from a non-malignant consequence than from a malignant consequence. So it raises the question that many phenotypes or many aspects of aging may actually be related to pre-malignant states. And if we could identify those pre-malignant states, we might be able to intervene on multiple aspects of aging. These recent findings have triggered a new phase of cross-disciplinary collaboration. We write up our findings and we publish them and then others see those and run with it. So the extraordinarily talented physician scientist in my lab who led this work, Sid Jaiswal, is now an independent faculty member and running a research laboratory at Stanford. So he's continuing to work on this. But now a number of labs that are really cardiology labs, not cancer labs, are also following up on these studies and publishing work on it. But Dr. Ebert is cautious to remind us that we're just at the beginning. The cancer genetics revolution is still relatively in its infancy. We have gone through the discovery phase very efficiently in the last five to ten years, finding all the genes that are mutated. That's being introduced into clinical practice uh, in many centers now. But we use a tiny fraction of that information clinically. There's a lot of information in that data that we just don't know. We're how not to acting use it. upon currently. We don't act upon it because we don't understand it yeah. yet. But since we're getting this information on patients at a clinical level and thousands and thousands of patients, that data is going to become available. And one of my goals from this talk was to at least convey to this community the opportunity of the size of the data sets and the solvability in some ways of making these associations. Another area of near-term promise is continuous monitoring via wearables, something Dr. Ebert is bullish on for a variety of reasons. I've been impressed for me just with the simple things like monitoring steps, that it does influence behavior, that I get to the end of the day when I've been in meetings all day and hadn't walked much and I'd feel a bit, you know... A bit slovenly or... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but now when I look and I have quantitative data that I am had so little activity, it is motivating to like, you know, at least go for a walk in the evening or, or do something or go for a run. In a clinical setting, the promise is twofold. There are an enormous number of opportunities where continuous monitoring, as is being developed at Bell Labs, would have potentially a lot of opportunities compared to the existing types of monitoring that we have that might be only in the doctor's office every month or every week or less frequently, and that could be enormously advantageous. I think it'll be challenging but exciting to see if we can use that to monitor a pre-malignant state, but I think at least from what I've seen so far, one of the major advantages of some of the technologies being developed here will be to monitor existing cancers that have been diagnosed that are undergoing therapy and to see more about how those cancers are responding. Other than the obvious carcinogenic activity, yeah. in terms of diet or in terms of exercise, is it the same old stuff like good night's sleep, exercise, don't yeah. get fat? Or are there superfoods? Are there superfoods yeah. that can prevent these 
changes? It's a fantastic question, and uh, it's so frustrating how it always comes back to the basic stuff of eating vegetables and exercise and stuff, and there's not a ton beyond that. As you said, in terms of the question of getting mutations, the issue is decreasing the mutagens or the carcinogens that actually cause mutations. And the ones that do that most powerfully are cigarette smoke, ultraviolet radiation and exposure to the sunlight, tanning salons, some foods, um, you know, alcohol itself can be uh, carcinogenic. Damn it. I know. Um, <laughs> actually, the saving grace of that one, getting back to the sort of question of about diet, the scientist who's made the greatest contribution to understanding exactly how it causes mutations is a brilliant guy named K.J. Patel, who's a professor at Cambridge University in, in England, and he is an extraordinary wine buff. He, he's the um, director of the wine cellar for one of the prominent Cambridge colleges, and so he knows intimately well exactly the side effects of alcohol, and he loves his wine. So I think that's a pretty good message. Is it the Revestrol reverses the... Is it other types of alcohol are more damaging, or is he just loves wine he doesn't care? No, it's not a resveratrol thing. It's just uh, he, he just enjoys his wine. I think, like everything, it, you know, in moderation, it's it's probably fine, and in excess, it's, it's a bigger deal. For much more please tune in to Dr. Ebert's full Shannon Luminary Lecture, which is available in this feed as the very next episode. You'll get the full picture, cautionary tales about overzealous screening, the digitization of pathology, and how immunotherapy, treatments that harness and enhance the innate powers of the immune system to fight cancer, has become newly successful after years of stunted promise. In short, the future of cancer prevention is already here. For more information about the topics discussed today, please check our show notes. And if you like this episode of Future Human, consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to leave a review at Apple Podcasts. It does help people find the show. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smolens, for audiation.fm. It was recorded and mixed at The Loft in Bronxville, New York by Matt Noble, who also composed the theme music with me. Additional production by Kelly Kramer. Audiation.